Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by John DiAquisisto. John pitched in the majors for six different teams over parts of 10 seasons and is currently a frequent contributor to InStream Sports. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show, Ross. Well, John, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, initially, I have an older brother named Fred, and he started playing Little League Baseball, and I was the bat boy. And I started to play catch with my brother and uh, started to get involved in it, and then also watching the Yankees and the Dodgers, listening to the Dodgers on on radio and watching the Yankees and the Giants, because those are the only two games we really got most of the time uh, on, on the CBS uh, stations uh, in San Diego. And so I, I was fascinated by the game and started to uh, then play at eight and fell in love with it. And from that point on, I started to excel in it and then it became a love and then it became a passion uh, to be at uh, age 10. I turned to my dad and said, I want to be a professional baseball player. And he says, yeah, go ahead, keep playing. Uh, We'll talk about that when you get there. Well, my dad received a card from the New York Mets when I was uh, 12 years old and uh, he never told me about it. He handed it to me when I signed and they were looking at me back then. So it became a passion and uh, I just fell in love with the game from that point on. You were drafted by the Giants with the 17th pick in the 1970 draft. You were drafted right out of high school. Tell me about that moment. Well, uh, things were different back then as they are now. Uh, We did not have cell phones or iMessaging or anything of the sort. Uh, It was like uh, they called the house and told me that uh, I had about four teams that were actually interested in drafting me in the number one spot. So we had constantly phone calls coming in at that time. And uh, uh, Detroit wanted to draft me as an outfielder, believe it or not. (laughs) And... uh, uh, the Giants, the Braves. In fact, I had gone to a, uh, a physical for the Braves and just had gotten home, and then the phone rang, and it was the Giants calling saying that they had drafted me in the first round. And also the Padres wanted to draft me, but not in the first round, but in the second round. So it was kind of a, of a crazy day, uh, waiting by the phone, as we would say, and, and then uh, the, the moment happened. And it was rather exciting. But there was a lot of tangents going on, too. Uh, There was the Vietnam War going on and the lottery and the draft. You know, all that came into perspective. And uh, we had to look at that also. So uh, that came up, and I got drafted number two by Uncle Sam. So it was kind of a down moment, (laughs) as you would say. Well, did you actually have to serve? No, I didn't, actually. I joined the... uh, the National Guard, and uh, when I went for my physical, I had a spinal scoliosis, and I got uh, one Y deferment and then a 4F, believe it or not. So I did not have to serve. I was I was physically unfit to serve for the military, but I could play professional baseball. You figure that one out, let me know. When you made it to the majors, you were known for your powerful fastball. You threw over 100 miles an hour on several occasions. How fast were you throwing out of high school? Pretty close to that. Pretty close to that. 
Uh, there were times they didn't have guns at the time, but there were certain things that happened that I could see that, you know, I was probably throwing at about a hundred miles an hour, uh, like throwing the ball and, and it went past the catcher and the umpire and stuck into a chain link fence right in front of Carl Hubble's face. And he couldn't knock it out of the chain link fence with his pipe. So my coach had to go over there with the fungo bat and knock it out of, of the, uh, the cage. And, uh, the ball was embedded literally embedded in into the chain link if you're throwing you know 90 that might happen but at about 100 that would really happen so there was indications back then that i was probably you know throwing on an average about 94 95 in high school as a senior and were you only throwing a fastball at that point or did you have other pitches at that point as well at that point i was only throwing a fastball uh, because that was all I needed throwing that hard. And uh, I didn't want to do anything to my arm. I saw a teammate of mine was throwing curveball after curveball after curveball, and his elbow snapped. And that kind of deterred me away from throwing the curveball. I figured I would learn it later. And I was right. I did learn it later. Uh, Frank Funk taught me the slider. And, and then uh, later on, Steve Carlton showed me how to throw the slurve, his famous slurve, which I was really honored that, you know, he, he would even show that to me. But uh, I was able to use that pitch later on in my career and to help me as a reliever because you need more than one pitch. And I finally developed a changeup and uh, a, two, uh, a two-seam changeup uh, grip that uh, 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 Fergie Jenkins showed me. And uh, then I also the slider, the slurve, and then the uh, cut fastball. Was the changeup the hardest pitch for you to develop? Uh, yeah, it was because uh, I was always power, 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 and for me to to keep my motion the same and yet take 10 miles an hour off the pitch, it was, it was very difficult. Because as a power pitcher, you're going all out, all out, and then then to cut it back, you know, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And Fergie Fergie Jenkins told me, he says, leave your foot on the rubber, don't push off, leave the motion the same, just don't push off the rubber, leave your foot back on. And you know what? It really did work. It really did work. And it, it got me out of a lot of tough situations when I get behind or trying, trying to, to throw too hard or, you know, my control got a little, little iffy. <laughs> I would use, uh, I would use that change up, you know, to get the ball on the ground, you know, uh, to make it sink. And that's exactly what it did. John, you end up making your major league debut on September 2nd, 1973 with the Giants. Tell me about that day. Oh, that was a great day. I came up from uh, Phoenix, and uh, Charlie Fox uh, met me at the airport. He took me to the Holiday Inn. I know that's where all the guys were staying in South San Francisco. And then uh, later that night, he took me out to Bertolucci's for dinner and told me I was starting the next day in the doubleheader with Juan Marichal, and I about passed out. I said, well, he goes, I believe in throwing guys right into the frying pan, from, you know, from the fire into the frying pan, let's, you know, get you out there and get you acclimated because uh, you're going to be one of our guides next year. And I said, okay, I got no problem with that. Uh, went out, I was obviously very nervous. Uh, I had the potential of seeing Hank Aaron. Uh, fortunately, I did not see Hank Aaron then, but I did see Hank Aaron on the second go around in a relief uh, appearance. Uh, in Atlanta, but uh, 
came out in the game and was doing really well. Got a little wild, but you know it was to be expected. And uh, but I also struck out quite a few guys in four and two thirds innings and uh, uh, did really well. Uh, it, it was exciting. Uh, there were a lot of people for the doubleheader, about forty-four thousand people, and uh, it worked out pretty good. Uh, I I I felt that I was blessed, uh, you know, to be. Uh, to be in that position to follow Juan Marichal and uh, and do really well. What adjustments did you feel like you had to make or did your coaches tell you you had to make after being called up and then the following year during your rookie year? I didn't have to make many adjustments at all, Ross. Uh, basically, with the fastball that I had, I think the hitters had to make more adjustments to me than I had to them. There hadn't been you know, a fastball that moved and also was 100-plus miles an hour. Uh, in a long time, and my, I think my catchers were having more fun with that than I was, uh, because that number one came down all the time, and you know it was uh, it was a very interesting situation that uh, later on, you know, the really good hitters would adjust to that. No matter how hard you throw, they can adjust to the speed, but they can't adjust to the movement. And the movement was the key because my ball moved. And this is why I walked a lot of guys, too, and a lot of people didn't realize that my ball moved tremendously to the right and down. And sometimes, you know, when I cut it, it, it would move a lot to the left. So I had a ball going into the left-handers and a ball going into the right-handers, and that kept, kept everyone pretty loose. Plus, uh, there were a lot of guys that went down on their back, too. You know, because, uh, you know, they, they weren't too sure about digging in on me. But later on, I, I finally figured out that, you know, for longevity purposes, it would be better to, you know, back off on the heater a little bit and start developing that change up and, and maybe a breaking ball. Because if I'm going to be starting, I'm going to have to change it up a little bit in blocks of threes. So I'd go three innings, I'd establish my fastball, and the next three innings I'd establish my breaking ball. And then I would uh, come back with the fastball and and the breaking ball and the changeup in 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 the uh, last third uh, because I break it down in three three and three segments and uh, three inning three inning three inning. So I made those adjustments as as I grew older and gained more experience with the other pitchers that were on the team, and I was always with older guys because I was a young kid when I got there. So I was with guys like Gaylord Perry. I was with guys like Juan Marichal. Uh, Mike McCormick used to come into the clubhouse quite a bit. So, you know, they would give me uh, advice or, you know, teach me certain things that I would use later on. And they said, when you start losing your fastball, you're going to realize that that's really an important issue to start changing speeds because your fastball will look a lot faster. What can you learn being a young pitcher, a rookie pitcher, from future Hall of Famers like Marichal and Perry? Did they teach you? What do they teach you about the craft of pitching? Well, uh, Juan, Juan taught me the most important thing is to get ahead. And strike one and strike two are very important. And you need a controlled breaking ball, which was a like a, uh, the nickel curve, we called it, or a slider which was just a controlled breaking ball. You didn't have to put a lot on it or be perfect with it. Just get it over the plate. And he says, you need to throw that when you're, when you've got men on base, because they're going to be looking for a fastball and this will get you ahead in the count. And then when you show them that 
that that's going to uh, give you an advantage because they know you got two pitches that are you're throwing for strikes. So they can't really sit on one or the other. And this is an, an, an important thing that I learned from Juan and Gaylord. Gaylord taught me just, you know, about specifics of, uh, about also getting ahead in the count, but use your best pitch when you're in a jam. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. Go with what you have. Go with what is your best pitch, and that will get you out of the jam. What your best pitch is that day. I might not have had a fastball certain days, but I might have had a really good curveball or, or a slider or the slurve working for me. And so I would go with, with the best pitch I had going that day. And I had to make that adjustment, and the realization was to find out what I did have going that day. And, of course, my catcher would tell me, you know, that he thought that, you know, the slider was a better pitch, you know, for the out pitch, et cetera, et cetera. Well, tell me about the nature of the pitcher-catcher relationship. Tell me how it starts and how it evolves over time. Uh, you were fortunate enough for a year to work with Gary Carter. Tell me a, bit, a little bit about him as well. My relationships with my catchers were, were – I, I didn't have a set catcher like Steve Carlton had Tim McCarver or, you know, certain things like that didn't, didn't exist for me. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to, when I started off, to, to, work, to work with uh, 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 Dick Dietz at first. And then after that, after working with Dick Dietz, uh, I was able to work with Dave Rader and Mike Sadek. And then Kenny Rudolph used to catch me a lot because he was a veteran catcher and he had really good hands behind the plate. And... You know, Kenny, Kenny would call the right pitches at certain times because he knew guys were sitting on certain things. These relationships developed over the years because we were together, and even when I got traded to St. Louis, Raider came with me. So when I did play, play or pitch, you know, in St. Louis for the limited time I did, Raider did catch me. And uh, But it's getting to know the pitcher, getting to know the individual, seeing certain things that the catcher can see in your face, you know, that you're showing him that, you know, I'm, I'm having a problem here. I need you to come out and talk to me about a pitch. Sometimes that would happen, but more, more than not, he would just, he would just slow me down. He would slow me down to the point where I wouldn't get ramped up because, you know, you get that adrenaline flowing. The catcher needs to come out and talk to you and settle you down a little bit and then turn around and go back. These are things that are instinctively known by the catchers uh, on a pitcher-catcher uh, pitcher relationship, and they're very important. Gary Carter, on the other hand, made me look like a control pitcher. And see, a lot of, lot of times, you know, with my ball moving the way it did, when I first got to Montreal, Gary and I went out to the right field bullpen, and we talked for about 20 minutes. And he says, I know your ball moves. Where do you want me to sit? How do you want me to sit? Do you want me in the middle of the plate? Does your ball move? I said, yes. And you point your finger inside or outside, and, that'll want, and the inside of your, of your left leg would be the sinker, and on the right leg is going to be the cutter. And he says, understood. And he would just sit in the middle of the plate, and he knew where the ball would end up. And if he wanted it outside, he would move over six inches on, on the corner of the plate, and then I would throw it to the center and let the ball do the work. Once I let it go, the ball, ball moved on its own. 
You know, once, once it's out of your hand, you've got no control of it. And, but yet it was very effective, especially when I became a reliever, uh, the numbers showed that. But Gary, Gary was really good. I, I, I was really close with Gary Carter. And because I played ball with his brother, Gordy, and, and uh, Gordy told me that uh, he had a little brother coming up that was going to be pretty good. I guess he was right, huh? We take the term rehab for granted. We hear it so much in all of sports that an athlete is rehabbing. You had elbow surgery at one point in your career. Tell me what the rehab process was like in coming back from that. First of all, having uh, ulnar nerve reset and then ulnar collateral reattachment uh, surgery, which was the precursor to Tommy John surgery. And mine didn't snap in the middle like a lot of guys uh, didn't, where they, where they would just replace the whole ligament. Mine snapped at the elbow, right at the ulna. And so all they did was pull it up, staple it to my elbow, and say, be gone with you, child. <laughs> you know? So I had my arm strapped to my chest for a good, oh, what, month and a half, try, try dealing with one arm. I knew what it was like dealing with just one arm and it was my left arm and I was driving a stick shift car. You figure that one out too. Uh, it was difficult. It was difficult. So once I got that off of my chest, believe it or not, uh, I, I started throwing, uh, first squeezing a, a racquetball and then I started squeezing a tennis ball. And then I started with a five-pound dumbbell. And I went to a 10-pound dumbbell. And I started doing what you would call wrist rolls or wrist curls uh, to build up the form. And so when I started building, because I had really bad atrophy because of having my arms strapped to my chest. And so I started playing catch, real easy catch. Uh, with the wall, the wall out in right field, the candlestick park was perfect. So I went out to the back wall and I started playing catch at the wall, just throwing a ball up against the wall, picking it up, throwing it again. And little by little, the velocity started coming back. I was not supposed to pitch that year in 75. I was not supposed to come back, but I started playing catch and my arms started feeling pretty good. And it started getting getting the tone back into it, and the muscle tone back. And I started playing catch with people. And then the velocity started to come back again. And then I got on the mound and started throwing. In a matter of three months, I was back playing again. So in that period, from the time of surgery to the third month, I was in a relief appearance against, in, you know, against the Atlanta Braves and. Uh, and got, got a win, came back and got a win in relief. You know, I did a lot of things that were, you know, not expected of, of people to do. They, they were things that were very rare. And they, you know, kind of, I would say, framed me, you know, as a person uh, of how I was uh, able, able to conquer a lot of things that went against me and, and was able to come back from all the adversity. You mentioned Gaylord Perry a few minutes ago. Perry, of course, was a great pitcher. He was also known for notoriously scuffing the ball whenever he could. How common was that at the time, and were you ever taking part of it? You know, 
Gaylor didn't just scuff the ball. He he uh, he used uh, a, a lot of different substances to make the ball do funny things. Uh, he he was the master of all. It, it, it's it's something that we all know. He even wrote a book about it. Me and the spitter, you know. So it, it's like, but Gaylord Gaylord was a fantastic pitcher. He would fool with you. He also had a split finger that looked like a spitter and he would throw that also. So he had two things going. He'd make you think about that. It was coming. He'd put it right in your face. Gaylord showed me how to, how to throw it. But because of the surgery I had, I, I was unable to throw any type of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, cut, cut fastball to any degree, to any degree. I, I, you know, or any spitter, excuse me, because my arm was curved. I lost five degrees range of motion after surgery. And so my arm, my arm was slightly curved. So it made my, my cut fastball even, even more dominant, even more dominant at that point. So I was, I was pretty pleased about that, but I could never, I could never, you know, uh, you know, get into doing a spitball or anything like that. I couldn't throw one. Uh, I, today there's a lot of things. If you talk to players today, they say, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Uh, I am not a fan of that. I say, play the game with your ability to what God gave you. If you have the ability to go out and be a professional athlete or a major league pitcher, play with what you've got. You don't have to cheat to win. If if you're good enough to beat, beat somebody, you're going to beat them on your own accord. You're not going to go out there and cheat you know, and, and, and say, unlevel the playing field. I believe in a level playing field and I don't believe in cheating. Well, speaking of level playing fields, your career in the seventies and the eighties was the time span of your career. It predates what's commonly referred to as the steroid era, but in the seventies and in the early eighties, did you see steroids coming into the game then? No, I, I didn't see anything at that point at all. None whatsoever. I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get your impressions on them. You recently wrote a piece on InStream Sports about Bobby Bonds. He played with Bonds when he was one of the best players in the league. Tell me about him and, and what your impressions are on Bobby. Well, Bobby, Bobby and I were really close because I used, I used to hang out in right field and say fly balls, uh, and that's where Bobby was located. You know, That's where he, he would hang out too. So we talked a lot. Uh, a lot of times I used to talk to Bobby about hitters. What are hitters thinking? What are the situations hitters are thinking? You know, uh, am I going to swing at a pitch if I'm a leadoff hitter like, like Bobby was, a leadoff hitter with power and, and, and speed, and yet he struck out a lot. He wasn't your typical leadoff guy. And I said, well, what are you thinking up there? Are you, trying, are you trying to drive the ball? Are you trying to hit it out of the park every time? He says, yep. I'm trying to, trying to get the ball as hard as I can. And most of the guys that lead off will sit there and try to take as many pitches as they can to get on base. I'm, I'm different. I'm a 30-30 guy, 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases, you know, and, and, I, and I hit for average. So I, I get on base a lot. He says, but, you know, people are always going to be concerned about getting on the base if you're a leadoff hitter. And then we would talk about situations, uh, one out, two out. Uh, what, what are guys thinking about there with men on first and second, men on first? Uh, what, you know, get them over, get them in, small ball. 
Are we thinking about power alley? Are we thinking about hitting the ball to the gap? He enlightened me about how hitters would think because I was basically a two-pitch pitcher. So I had to know the stuff about pitching in the box. Pitching in the box is up and away, up and in, low and away, low and in. And then you got, of course, right in the middle. So if you pitch the box and you keep moving your fastball around, you're going to have success because it's not in the same spot two, two times, and the third time you're going to get hit. So he would, he would elaborate on that how pitchers would work the box. And he said one of them, one of the best ones was uh, actually two of the best ones, and, and, and it were Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, how they could pitch in the box and, and make, make a fastball and a curveball look the same. Koufax, that, that's where his success was. His, his curveball and his fastball came out of the same plane. And then one went up and one went down. How are you going to hit that? You can't hit that. A guy you faced 46 times in your career, Pete Rose. Tell me about him. Well, Pete and I were very, very good friends, uh, uh, except on the field. And uh, Pete, Pete was always a pleasure to play against because it was always uh, highly competitive and always talking up there and trying to distract you from doing your job. And uh, one time, uh, the man saved my career. He flat saved my career because I was tipping my pitches. I, when I throw my curveball, I'd lift my my uh, index finger off of my glove, and I couldn't understand why. And it was getting around the league too. My ERA started to, to balloon. That was that was in 1979 when my ERA was at 4.92, and I'm going, why is this happening? I'm throwing really good 12-6 curveballs, and they're hitting them. They're not supposed to be hitting curveballs off of me. And so Pete cornered me one day, and he says, look, Johnny, he says, you're tipping your pitches. And it's all over the league. He says, you're lucky your ERA is at 495, you know, because you've got a good fastball, and it moves. So it could be higher. He says, we know when you're throwing a curveball, you lift your finger off your glove, and then we know it's a curveball, and we can hit it. Because we're not going to sit on your fastball. We can't hit your fastball, so we're going to hit the curveball instead. I said, that makes sense. So the next night, I'm starting against the Reds. I stick my hand in the glove completely. And they're screaming at me, who told you? Who told you? And I just laughed and shook my head. Pete was, Pete was shaking his head. He goes, Thanks. You're supposed to do this after you pitch against us, not before. I said, no, 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 no. You opened your mouth, and I and I inserted my foot, not your foot, my foot. And we laughed about that. But Pete was a Pete was really good to me, and uh, he backed me all the way when I got hurt. He said some really nice things at a banquet in San Francisco uh, that we had, the opening day banquet. He really supported me a lot in my career and he was, he's a good friend. He still is a friend today. How do you see the game has changed over the last 30 years? Oh, television, you know, television changed it tremendously. I'll I'll give you an example, Russ. Uh, In 19, I'm going to say 74, when I, my first year as a rookie, uh, I made $22,000. In 75, when I got hurt, I got a raise to before the season. So I had to sign 
so I, I got a raise, $20,000 raise to $42,000, which is pretty high for a 22-year-old 20, kid. 76, when I got hurt in 76, and these were all one-year contracts. In 76, I didn't get a raise because I got hurt, so they kept me and maintained me at 42. And then in 77, TV rights started to come. So when the, when the TV rights came in, uh, I got signed for a multi-year contract, and it was for like half a million dollars. So in a matter of three years, the acceleration of, of, of contracts went, it went to the roof. And I'm getting half a million, and I just come off arm surgery. So what are these other guys getting? You know, and they were locking guys up in, in, into multi-year contracts. And then I got traded to St. Louis and then to San Diego. And so, you know, it was like after that, I ended up signing a million-dollar contract, you know, with the Angels. So things really accelerated when TV came in into play. And the collective bargaining agreement, uh, the pensions, uh, vested membership, uh, a number of things came into play. And then uh, the owners tried to collude. Uh, a lot of a lot of the players and blackballing uh, blackballing the player reps, and I was one of the ones that got blackballed, uh, as well as Dick Deet and, and quite a few Bob Barton. Uh, there are a number of guys that got blackballed back in the early '70s and then in in the early '80s. You know, the basic theory of the whole thing now is you're seeing multi multi million dollar contracts. And I'm sorry, Ross. You know, I'm I'm all I'm all for guys making the money, you know, and doing that. But you know, there's there's a point in in a career as an athlete where I have to say it's a game. And if I'm going to get paid 14 million dollars a year to play a game, I, it just doesn't fathom in my head. But because of all the TV advertising, if that's what it is, then it's turned into a media business and entertainment instead of a game. And it kind of bastardized the game at that point. The game should be a sacred entity. It is America's pastime. Uh, there's a legacy involved with it called children. And the children that want to be professional players later, these particular legacies need to be protected. And, and recently I've seen some indication that baseball has maybe woke up to the fact that the kids are the legacy and they want to protect it because they're advertising about about it on, on the games and everything where I've never seen them advertised before. So maybe they're starting to listen to what I'm saying. That legacy needs to be protected or baseball will not have anyone to play the game. John, tell me about coming to grips with retirement. You'd been playing baseball your entire life. You were a first-round pick out of high school. You're throwing 100 miles an hour. How do you come to grips with no longer being able to play professionally? Fortunately, I had an occupation at the time. I was in banking. And so that lessened the blow a little bit. But it was still difficult because when my contract ended, my, my wife left me, uh, <laughs> which was... I didn't read that in the fine print in my contract, but when she left, I was, I was by myself. I was by myself. Fortunately, I had saved up some money and, you know, it, it worked out pretty well, but, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. I got hit. Like I said, I got hit with a divorce. 
you know, things went sideways for me. You know, it was very tough for me to handle. But I, I was able to recover and get back on track and, you know, go on with life. But it, it, it's a difficult thing to, you know, you can't predetermine life's, life's uh, little little misfortunes that happen to you. But, you know, when, when they do occur, you can't sit there and dwell upon it. You have to get up on your feet and, and keep going forward and try to, you know, better the situation. What they're doing now, and, and, and I can see that a lot of this has, has taken hold, is that the, the MLB has got a relationship with the University of Phoenix to where they're trying to educate players that don't have college education to help better their position in life later on and give them some counseling, which, it, which I take my hat off to them for. You know, trying to help the, the player, uh, you know, uh, get get into the business world and acclimate a little easier than he has than than we had before. Uh, we didn't have that. We were on our own, and and it was because of the happenstances that that occurred to to all of us players before these guys of today. Now they're starting to make make the changes for these guys when they should have been making them before, because these guys here are making enough money. That if they save it, they they shouldn't have anything to worry about. Plus, their pensions are you know twenty times more than what ours are. So it's like you know they can acclimate to life after the game. We were the ones that suffered in the seventies, eighties, and ninety era, and it, it it was hard. It was difficult. You've been listening to John Giacquisisto. John pitched in the majors for six different teams over parts of 10 seasons and is currently a frequent contributor to InStreamSports.com. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You're very welcome, Mark. It's my pleasure.